This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. Clem, publisher of the Plaid Horse Magazine. And I'm Sissy Wicks, editor of the Plaid Horse Magazine. And you're listening to Horses in the Morning Weekend Plaidcast Edition on the Horse Radio Network for Saturday, October 22nd, 2016. Episode 2. This episode is brought to you by EponaExchange.com. Good morning, horse world. Horses in the Morning Weekend Edition presents the Plaidcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the second edition of the Plaidcast. Um, last month's first edition of the Plaidcast was the third most listened to episode of On Horses in the Morning last month. So we're really proud to represent the horse show community. Um, I'm here at Yay. the Pennsylvania National Horse Show. <laughs> I'm here at the Pennsylvania National Horse Show this week, and um, Sissy's been visiting in and out, and we got to watch a lot of junior hunter and pony competition on Thursday and Friday and Saturday, the USEF medal finals on Sunday, and now we're moving into the professional divisions, the jumpers, and then the amateur divisions this weekend. I think it's been a week of tremendous competition at the Pennsylvania National Horse Show. The junior hunters were very competitive. The ponies uh, were great, as always. And the USEF medal finals held yesterday started at 7 o'clock in the morning and ended at 7 o'clock last night with 277 riders, which is a lot of medal finalists. So congratulations to all of the the riders and their connections, the parents, the grooms, the trainers. It was really a tremendous day and the culmination of not just one year, but years of hard work for those kids to, to make that finals. Uh, Piper, what did you think of yesterday? Um, it, was, it was a very long day. Um, the course was difficult and it really let riders show who, you know, who had really practiced their fundamentals and, I think the course had a huge element of bravery, you know, when a couple of the early kids had issues, I think it um, caught up with, you know, got really got into the mental game of the later riders and that there was a lot of, um, you really had to have gusto and go for it, especially as a later rider on that course. And some of the kids out there just really showed what they were made of. And that was really cool. And there were plenty of horses there that did not exactly want to, be there yesterday it seemed and um you know to watch these riders use everything they have everything in their toolbox i think um maybe they didn't feel like they had the best day but that's it's really cool to see them give it all they have yes it was i thought the first course was very very difficult uh again it's easy to sit in the stands and and make that judgment. But the statistics are that out of 277 riders, 79 did not complete the course. And that's a very difficult thing to watch. 
It doesn't matter where you're standing. That's a very difficult thing to watch. So um, take heart to all those kids that didn't get around. It was a tough day, and, and we know that you will you will ride again. So hang in there. Um, the day actually stayed exciting. The first course was difficult. The second course in the top 25 had quite a turnaround. There were kids that came back and I think felt the pressure of making that cut, especially the ones in a few of the ones in the top 10. And then the final four was very exciting. So it really went down to the wire. There was not a moment where you couldn't take your eyes off what was going on in front of you. And, and I guess that's the mark of a, of a great competition. And I think there are a lot of preconceived notions to, you know, what the A circuit looks like a bit. But I walked back in the barns a lot throughout the whole weekend, and I saw kids braiding their own horses and cleaning their own tack and, uh, you know, lunging their own horses, giving their own horses baths. And, you know, I thought that the horsemanship level was huge back in the barns and that there are a lot of riders who care so much about their horses and want to do things that themselves and want to learn and that's always really cool to see it is really cool to see and that's what it's about is is the relationship with the horse uh today we are going to talk to tom o'mara who is the father of tj o'mara who happened to win the medal finals yesterday which was just an amazing riding display tom is going to talk to us about collegiate equestrian and he is quite involved in collegiate equestrian and a great ambassador for that competition. And then our second interview is with Stacia Madden, who along with Max Amaya were the trainers of TJ O'Mara. So we have Stacia and TJ himself on the phone for an interview about yesterday, discussing not only the course in general, but TJ's experience uh, through the three rounds yesterday and, and his, uh, his mindset that enabled him to emerge victorious. So it's, it's going to be a great interview. And it's especially impressive because TJ just won the USEP, um, the ta- Talent Search Finals East, a week before the um, medal finals at Harrisburg. And so having that consistency and that performance at that level is, you know, unbelievably impressive. We rarely see back-to-back equitation winners. At the major that final, is true. So. And he appears to have ice in his veins when he rides, which is really something. Our first guest on the podcast this morning is Tom O'Mara, father of TJ O'Mara, who has had a stellar two and a half weeks in the equestrian world. TJ won the East Coast USCT East Talent Search East Coast Finals on October 9th in Gladstone, and he won uh, the USEF medal finals last night in Harrisburg in a very hotly contested class. So uh, we'd love to welcome Tom to our show today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Tom is the father of four riders who have all had notable junior careers, including uh, Meg, who won the 2012 medal finals. So that makes them the only siblings to have ever won the medal finals, which is a wonderful achievement. Um, Abby and Meg, Tom's middle children, are riders at the University of Georgia, and Tom has become very involved in the intercollegiate equestrian world, much to 
uh, our benefit as parents and as an industry. So we have Tom today not to talk about PJ, but to talk about uh, <laughs> collegiate equestrian organizations, participation, and the status of the NCAA equestrian program. So Tom, you and I have had many conversations about uh, collegiate equestrian. And mm -hmm. what do you think the health of collegiate equestrian is today? <clears throat> well, um, just w one correction before I go forward on that. There, I was told, actually, a similar thing about siblings winning the medal final. There were two sisters in the 80s who won on the same horse, I believe, either four oh or five God. years apart. Yeah, I didn't realize it was in, the, I think, 82 and 87, but... Uh, someone just pointed that out to me this morning, which was really exciting to see that as well. And that it kind of brings exciting. back a little bit of history of the, of the sport right back when things like this happened. So it was really exciting. Yeah, well, it, it shows you that what you read on the Internet is not necessarily true. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> uh, very correct, especially when it comes to an intercollegiate uh, equestrian, which... Um, right. Yeah, the health of college equestrian is... Uh, it's, it's very robust. Um, there has been... Well, first of all, when you say collegiate equestrian, there's a lot of different formats. There are, I mean, if you just go to our USEF website and type in collegiate right on uh, the United States Equestrian Federation website, you know, there are six different formats listed under collegiate. And all of them are, you know, they're slotted formats for different types of riding. And um, there uh, is the uh, ANRC. There's the uh, intercollegiate dressage. Um, just recently, I think uh, only a year or two now, there's intercollegiate eventing. Um, there is the intercollegiate saddle seat riding association. And of course, um, the longest, well, maybe not the longest, but um, a very uh, famous college program and format is the IHSA, the Intercollegiate Horse Show Association, which this year is celebrating its 50th year. So, I don't know, something might have been before that, but probably not. But it is really a remarkable program. So many schools are involved. So many people have ridden for IHSA teams while they're at universities uh, or in college and continue to do so today. So it's really a wonderful uh, format that's out there. And then, um, of course, there's the NCEA, which is the National Collegiate Equestrian Association, which is a um, coaches organization that oversees the sport of NCAA collegiate equestrian, which is an emergent sport under NCAA rules for women. Um, and how the, much longer will it be an emerging sport? Was well, there that's not actually a, time a very good question. There, there, there is a time frame, and there, and there had been a time frame, and that is under consideration at this point. What happened with the NCEA, some of your listeners may have heard about two years ago, there was a bit of a hiccup with it is what we call it, because it had run past its 10-year time uh, allotment that the NCAA gives to all uh, emerging sports to get to what they call championship status. And what happened was the 10-year time frame had passed. Um, the Committee on Women's Athletics within the NCAA had given it an extension because they thought it had good promise still. And then a couple more years had gone by, and... Um, there was another review by the Committee on Women's Athletics within the NCAA. And they said, you know, we don't see progress all of a sudden with new teams coming on board. 
So two years ago, they had written a quick letter, which was posted and published saying that they had to, based on the um, criteria put in front of them, which was 40 schools within a 10-year time frame, or at least movement towards that, that they had to recommend that it not continue as an emerging sport. So that became a little bit of uh, an issue. The good news is we are beyond that now. And your question was, how long will it be an emerging sport? Well, the NCAA has actually looked at that original criteria, and they are actually reviewing that, whether or not that was fair, some criteria that was written, you know, dozens of years ago uh, when uh, emerging sport was first formatted, whether it should just be a time frame or whether it should be a time frame plus number of participants, which is why they sat down and reviewed it that 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 letter was moved up to a higher committee within the NCAA, and they said, you know what, this sport, we know that it hasn't gotten to 40 schools, which would make it a championship sport under NCAA rules, but there are 800-plus female athletes competing as NCAA athletes at 24 universities currently. So they recognized that that was pretty significant because, in fact, there are championship sports that have fewer than 800 participants, no less 800 female participants. So the good news is... What, what's the biggest deterrent to this? Is it the, the cost of keeping horses and, and uh, building facilities and shipping all over the country for, for events? I mean, it's certainly no more so than football, but they don't pull in the revenue that football does from their boosters. So what is the biggest deterrent to the spread beyond 24 uh, of, of equestrian? That's a very good question as well. Um, there's a few things. The biggest deterrent was um, it, it always comes down to money. Um, collegiate athletics for all sports, it, it, it's very rare that they are adding a lot, of, a, a lot of sports year in and year out. As you mentioned football earlier, football is one of the primary revenue uh, drivers within any school's athletic program. And it depends on the university and their sports. You know, some of them have very strong basketball teams that also make money for the school. Um, that money that is generated is used to fund other athletic um, teams as well as the school in general. Academics uh, can be used for anything, quite frankly. It's the school's money. So one of the biggest um, impediments is it's always money. It's very difficult to walk into an athletic director at a university and say, you need to add any sport. Um, and, and, you know, we think there's a lot of great reasons why equestrian is a wonderful sport to be being added, um, but it, uh, many of them, it just comes down to a budget. So what we have found was they're very much more interested in a proposal of how they can start a sport if there is some um, plan or uh, blueprint that we can show them, which would perhaps show them how they could build a sponsorship model around it. And believe it or not, on the cost of the actual sport, you mentioned everyone always thinks, and we all know in the horse business, the horse is it's an expensive, it can be an expensive uh, sport. Um, on a per student basis at the 24 schools that have this program, and again, uh, I don't have the stats right in front of me, but it's one of the lower cost per student athlete sports there is. Why is that? Well, many of the horses almost all of them, 90-some-odd percent of them, are donated. So right out of the chute, it's not like these universities are going out buying horses for their teams. 
Um, there's many wonderful people in our industry who have horses that perhaps have aged beyond their intended use for many years, and uh, they're happy to move on and be well taken care of uh, within these collegiate programs. Uh, some of these schools have vet schools that you know they've tied into it. So I've noticed various people are donating to different schools for different reasons, but it happens on the uh, NCEA side. It happens on the IHSA side as well. So it's a wonderful outlet for a lot of people, and it's something that we're also out, you know, letting people know more about. It's a great place to donate your horse. Are, are there any schools that are on the precipice of beginning an intercollegiate program that you know of, that you've dealt with? Yes, there are. There, there are quite a few, as a matter of fact. One of the problems we had was, again, when this uh, CWA, the famous CWA letter came out two years ago, it, it pretty much put a, a halt uh, on anyone who was in the review process or even in the consideration process of adding another sport. Um, listen, there are other competing female emerging sports as well. So when a university sits down and says, we need to add another uh, sport, whether it's a men's sport or a women's sport, you know, they look at quite a few of them. And um, during the last number of years, and maybe you go back five years when we were in more difficult in economic environment, there were no sports being added uh, across the country, Division One, Two, II, and Three. There was a net decline in the number of sports, the number of teams, and the number of participants in college sports. So it wasn't growing for a little bit of time. So that bad economic environment for all collegiate sports, then coupled with a letter saying we don't recommend this continuing as an emerging sport. You can imagine it really wasn't on the top right. of many AD's files. That being said, we spent about a year last year, we being the National Advisory Board for the NCEA. It was a group that was put together in, the, in January of 2015. Uh, David May and Kelly Chapman are the co-chairs of the National Advisory Board. There's about 15 people on this board. Um, and we advised the coaches committee, the NCEA, and they had hired a full-time executive director, Leah Fiorentino. So we put some framework around our sport, the, our sport being the NCEA. And um, that framework has really helped because what we realized was we can't go out and talk to people about raising uh, either funds or adding new schools before we got clarity from the NCAA. And that took us a full year. So this we're clear the Division One and Division Two councils at the NCAA have both said we continue to support it as an emerging sport. So now you guys can go back out and start marketing this to people. So only this year, really, have we had kind of a full-fledged development effort reaching out to various universities who had considered it, universities that have uh, agriculture uh, colleges, agriculture schools, veterinary schools, um, or, or have a history around them that, or, or a community around them that is horse-rich. And we've targeted those schools, and we now have an active development calling program to them. And again, even with that kind of framework around it, it's difficult just to walk in and say, you need to start this. What we also do is try to work with the horse community around these universities, whether it's the immediate physical community, um, local farmers, trainers, uh, breeders, or whether it's alum of the universities who are interested in the sport. And we have reached out to them and are pulling them in together so we can walk in to a university's administration and an athletic department and say, these people are your people. It's your university's community, and they would love to see the sport. And perhaps 
had you, if you consider it, they'd be able to help uh, finance it. And it's less about, again, as I said earlier, financing the sport, the horses, but there is obviously a cost to running any type of program. And, uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what a day at the NCA horse show looks like, um, you know, kind of what goes on and what people are experiencing. It's a wonderful format, and it is one that is unique to the NCAA. And the NCAA format, they're, they're head-to-head meets, one school against another. They'll do dual meets uh, very often, but they'll be doing a head-to-head meet at any one time. There are four disciplines in each NCAA competition, and hence there are really kind of four squads within each NCAA team. Um, the four disciplines, two are Western and two are Huntsy. The two Western disciplines are horsemanship and reining, and the two Huntsy disciplines are over fences and a flat. And it's very interesting, flat, by the way, for the Huntsy uh, listeners today, the flat program is really a very advanced dressage pattern. And it's something, quite frankly, even the recent winners of Big X championships probably haven't done a lot of. And it's something our the riders, it's a new challenge when they get to the collegiate level. So when we get to a meet, <clears throat> you have these four different disciplines. And at each meet during the season, there are five points that will be awarded to each to um, to a school for each of the four disciplines. So there are a total of 20 points to be had in a meet. What they do is for each of those disciplines, they do a draw before the meet starts and they pick five horses at random. The home team supplies the horses. So there is some edge to be in the home team, which is why during the season, there's usually a home and an away or home and home, they call it between the two schools. So that'll nullify uh, that effect over time. And then when we get to division championships or conference championships, I'm sorry, and national championship, everyone donates horses. So no one ever rides a horse from their own school during those bigger championships. But they'll draw five horses, and I'll use hunt seat over fences as an example. They'll draw five horses randomly, and then they go down and they draw a rider from each squad to ride that horse, and that's all assigned ahead of time. They have a practice rider comes out and schools those horses in front of the two riders, so no one person gets to ride it more than the other, and they have to watch the horse's idiosyncrasies and how it goes for that practice rider. And then um, each rider will get, I forget the time frame, it's a short time frame, maybe two or three minutes to warm up the, the horse with over a limited number of jumps, and then they will go in, and they will ride the horse, and then They'll go down the rotation, and then they'll come back so the horses get to rest, and they'll come back and they'll have the riders uh, from the other team ride them. And they go back and forth. They alternate between the two teams. So at the end of the day, each horse is ridden by um, a rider from each team, and whichever rider gets the highest score wins the point. So you can win, by the way. So it's an interesting change also when people come out of the junior world where they're always just trying to have the highest score to win a blue ribbon here it's an adjustment because the girls realize that you might draw a difficult horse and you may not be winning a blue ribbon in a regular competition, but your only job is to ride that horse better than the girl on the other team. So it really uh, identifies and highlights the equitation of each of the, or the rider's capabilities in each of these disciplines, which is really neat. Um, so it could come down to a 10, 10 tie. 
If that happens, it goes to the raw scores, and that's how we come up with the winners for the event. So it's pretty exciting. It's a great format, head-to-head, neutral horses. Who's the better rider on that horse? I mean, what the, the one of the things that I think needs to happen in collegiate and equestrian is a better clearinghouse of information. As a parent who navigated this with my own daughter, who who really just wanted to ride um, in a club setting, didn't want to choose a school according to equestrian, I stuck my toe in that a little bit. And I find it hard to navigate the maze of choices and applications and um that kind of thing. Do you have any uh, thing on the horizon that might help prospective parents and sophomores and juniors in high school try to get get going with with collegiate equestrian? Uh, again, another good question. Um, yes, we've heard that in a variety of different ways over the years, um, and what what we recognized is that there's a couple of issues, but um, there's a few initiatives that we are taking uh, up, which is to get the word out to help parents of high school students understand what has happened. But one of the biggest overriding issues with NCAA anyway, and this is not pertained to IHSA, is IHSA, quite frankly, has a really great press. Um, and they've got, you know, you go to the website of any of these organizations. If you start at the USEF, you can drill down, type in collegiate, and you'll see all the six different formats I talked about earlier. And on each one, you could hit that right there, and it'll take you to their home webpage. So everyone has their own. Each of these different um, formats, uh, collegiate formats, has a, a website, which does have a lot of information. And there's a lot of frequently asked questions sections on all of them, and they have um, you know questions that parents ask about what to do and what not to do. But um, So the ISSA does a really great job with that. The NCEA, the one issue we have, the NCEA, with we being the National Advisory Board, but I know that the, the, the NCEA themselves have this issue, is that everything the NCEA does falls under and is governed by NCAA rules. And, you know, for, again, people listening who are familiar with other high school, other collegiate sports, other high school sports, college coaches are very, very respected as to what they can do when they interact with high school students. So it sounds counterintuitive. You'd love to get all this information out to help them make these decisions. On the other hand, they restrict how often people can reach out and talk to high school. And because it's considered um, recruiting, it's considered um, solicitation. And there are very specific rules as to when any college coach for any sport can speak to a student. So they are not allowed to have you know, that people have heard about these football camps. They're all highly regulated. You know, there can only be so many people at them for certain periods of time, only a certain amount of interaction with the coaches and the parents. Um, that's probably the most advanced stage. So you can imagine with equestrian, they don't even have that type of thing. But um, um, but there are ways to reach out. And if you go to the NCEA website, there, under the FAQs, there is a way that'll tell you when you can, when coaches can reach out to you, but what you could do prior to that. And I do know the deadline is in July of the summer before your rising senior high school year. Once that happens, the coaches can reach out and kind of solicit you anywhere. But prior to that, so when you're eighth grade, freshman, sophomore, junior, and high school, they really can never reach out to you. Um, however, if you happen to be on their campus, you can mm-hmm. they can speak to you all you want on their campus, right. but to be on your own dime if you happen to be there. Um, 
so it becomes difficult for parents. And knowing with my first daughter, quite frankly, and this is years ago now, 10 years ago, um, and knowing I had three children behind her who would all be looking at colleges, um, and three of them, three of my children are girls, and they could ride NCAA, and one's a boy, and he can't ride NCAA, but we looked at colleges for IHSA programs, uh, NCAA programs, and we didn't look at the dressage or the eventing just because we didn't do that. They didn't do that when they were juniors, but um, I would imagine it'd be the same for all formats. Uh, you need to start exploring this, and we just literally pulled up those websites and started looking at colleges that they were interested in to study at. And if they had one of these programs, it was, uh, you know, just a tie-in. When we did our recruiting or visit college visitations that everyone does in junior years of high school, and some people do it even sooner, you know, we tied that in. And I remember with my first daughter, we went to, we had three buckets of schools, schools that had, um, uh, schools that had no, no equestrian programs, schools that had some equestrian programs in schools that had the equestrian programs that she was interested in. <laughs> so, um, right. yeah, but she picked those schools based on, you know, the academics and what school she wanted to go to. And then we just sorted them that way. We kind of thought of them in those three buckets. So on the horizon, besides us getting out and uh, discussing this with a lot of people, we've done two things recently. The first one, the National Advisory Board, we started a new junior hunt seat medal class for the junior riders, not for college riders, but in the junior ranks, it's a 3-3 junior hunt seat metal class called the NCEA metal class. We just started it this past year uh, in January, so it was truncated right in the middle of the horse show year, and we just had our first, there's two finals, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. The East Coast just happened two weeks ago in Culpeper. I went down to that. It was wonderful. These are kids who competed all year long, and they could be all, you know, eighth grade, freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors, they can all ride for as long as you're a junior rider. Um, the NTEA metal class, you can see it. It's out on ridegate.com. They have, um, they administer it and you can see where it's being held near you. And the reason we started this was a little bit what you were saying, Sissy, was 10, how do we get the word out there? So it does help people who attend these, you know, they hold them at hundreds of shows, 120 shows held this class this past year. And that was in a truncated year. So we're very excited about the support we got from the horse show world when, you know, we went door to door and talked to them about it. And a lot of them didn't understand NCEA. And a lot of them said, wow, we'd love to help with this. So they all held the class. So the kids competed all year long. Um, and then those who qualified for the finals, we got invited in the West coast finals is in a couple of weeks out. Um, it hits sunshine thermal and, um, and uh, it, it's been a wonderful effort. And now at the finals, we actually, the top four riders, after they do fences in a flat face, we put them in a bracketed format, just like what they would go through if they were riding for an NCAA collegiate team. So it's very exciting. I was there in Culpeper. We had, we had five NCAA coaches there watching the finals, myself and the executive director. And it was, and the parents and the, and the, and the trainers, they had never seen that format before for these younger riders. And they thought it was wonderful. They switched horses, yeah, I mean, two girls rode definite- one horse and, yeah, there's a huge separation between what our kids grow up with and, and what that format is. And, Tom, I think that that we are lucky to have you as a spokesman and a liaison between those two worlds. Um, and I look forward to, to the work that you're doing. So thank you so much for your time, and congratulations on your son's success. Um, thank you, you so have, much. You uh, have two more finals down to get to 34, so... 
<laughs> and it, for right. our listeners, if you look at the uh, October Plaid Horse magazine, there's an article about Tom O'Mara that's called 34 Finals, because when DJ participates, God willing, in the McClay Finals at the National Horse Show in November, that will mm-hmm. be the O'Mara family's 34th equitation final, which is really something that most parents could not bear. And you not only have uh, endured with grace, but with with a lot of success lately. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. We're very fortunate. Some great, great people and teams we've, we've worked with over the years, and we've just been fortunate. Everyone's done a great job. Today's premier sponsor is Epona Exchange. Epona Exchange offers a premium online experience for horse buyers and sellers. Epona Exchange lists horses for sale, stud, and lease from trusted sellers. Visit EponaExchange.com today and receive 50% off a featured listing. The USEF Medal Finals has been one of the most coveted awards for equitation riders since its inception in 1937. Um, The finals have been held at the Pennsylvania National Horse Show, which is in its 71st year this year, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, at the Farm Show Complex. Um, Pessoa has sponsored the medal for 21 years. You can read about their sponsorship in the October issue of the Plot Horse magazine at theplathorse.com. Um, some of our nation's greatest international show jumping riders have come up through the ranks and won the USAF medal finals over the years. Yes, in 1962, in fact, the famous George Morris won the medal finals, and I believe he was quite young at the time. I should know that, but I don't. Um, in 1972, Katie Monahan, now Prudent. 76, Francie Steinwaddell, now Carvin. 98, Olympian Kent Farrington. 06, Maggie McAlary. And in 2012, Meg O'Mara, sister of yesterday's winner, TJ O'Mara. So it was quite a day yesterday. 277 riders. Uh, and it was, it was everything a final could be. Our second interview for our second podcast is with trainer Stacia Madden and with last night's USEF medal winner, TJ O'Mara. So welcome, Stacia and TJ. Uh, Stacia, I'll start with you. Stacia is the 1987 McClay Finals winner. And if you look at our current, current issue of the Plaid Horse, you will see an article called Remember When, and it's, it's a conglomeration of metal and McClay finalists, uh, their memories and some great pictures. And I think Stacia's memory is my favorite. So get a copy of the magazine and read what, what Stacia's memory of her 1987 finals uh, victory was. It's, it's a great read. So Stacia, let's talk a little bit about last night. Um, sure. And in particular, round one. So for those of us who sat and watched, it looked like, um, I don't want to use the word carnage, but it was a very difficult first round. And the statistics are that 79 out of 277 starters did not complete the course. So that comes to about 29%, which is not quite one in, in three, but it's, it's close. So what was your opinion of that that first round and the difficulty factor? When I walked the course, I was surprised at the 
height the and the width of the oxers on the ends of the ring and and the repeated jumping of the complicated jumps I really thought that and I didn't get a chance to watch a lot of the class because I think I had 20 or 21 riders that I put into the metal class so I was doing a lot of back My and forth God. and didn't get a chance to to really watch I thought that of that 21 you know, the, did you have any that did not finish two I believe but interestingly enough they were both at the two stride in and out neither one of them had problems with the oxers I, I thought that the two stride in and out was going to pose a riding question I thought there was going to be a lot of threes in the twos I didn't really expect um that horses would be stopping or that horses or that riders would fall off in the in the two stride I just figured that if the riders made a judgment error or the horses didn't have the stride and scope to come out that they would just be able to do three from my and I think that what I watched I thought that was the most difficult element was that kind of off angle of coming back on that too so but having said that I mean the the current qualifying system allows 277 kids to qualify for that final. And clearly, the majority of them should, had a difficult time riding a course of that caliber and of that difficulty. So is that, is that course a fair question given the amount of kids that qualify from literally all over the country? to to face around that difficult? I mean, I think for some horses and some kids, that was much too big of a question to ask. You know, the judges touched on it a little bit last night. They said that this is really known for being a very prestigious medal finals, as well as also our grassroots medal finals. It's for the kids to be able to step up after the Taylor Harris and the other three-foot classes during the year and, and, and be their first finals. So, it's really incredibly complicated to try to come up with a course that the the top riders are being asked enough questions to make a good class, and yet the grassroots riders are having a good, fair experience. I didn't get to watch enough of the class, so I'm probably not a great person to ask, but I know that my young kids that uh, got a chance to do medal finals this year you know, had a, had a nice day. So I think the course was probably on the top end of complex for a grassroots championship that also needed to be able to be a championship course for your top riders. And I think the judges recognized that because they touched on it last night in the press conference, but when they walked the course, they thought maybe it was a touch too easy. So they made the oxers on the ends of the ring a little bigger and a little wider. And in hindsight, I think they said that they think that they didn't need to do that. So TJ, tell us about your day yesterday. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, when I looked at the course chart originally, uh, it didn't, I didn't see that many jumps in the ring. So I thought it was going to walk easier than it was. Um, but as soon as I started watching the class go on, then I realized, how technical it was and so I thought that I was a little more nervous about the first round than the second round in the long run uh, 
right. uh, second round, it seemed like it was a little easier than the first round, but um, I think that the way it played out in the second round, that uh, nerves got to most people and they were trying to sort of move up in the rankings. And I thought that that got to a lot of riders. And um, Now tell, our, and then, tell everybody uh, um, what, what you thought of, what was the most difficult part of the first round for you and your horse, your mare? Um, I thought just the oxers on the end, I thought were uh, hard and you had to really use the shape of the ring to get the best jump out of the horse. Um, so my horse has the tendency to cut left a little bit. So all those left turns, I really had to make sure that I was on the rail and not letting her cut in. Um, so I really think it was just not the jumps that I was worried about is more the in-between. Right. And then you were called back in what order in the round of 25? Uh, I was called back in fifth, so I went back uh, 21st out of the 25. And that's kind of a nice place to be sitting, right? Because you can move up, but you don't have the pressures of the top three. Yeah, so I knew that I was in striking distance of the top four, and that was my goal coming into the final. Um, so I knew that if I just put in another solid round, uh, like I did in the first round, um, then there was a chance of me moving up and, uh, Stacia and Max, they both told me before going in that a lot of people were messing up the second round. So I just had to have trust in uh, cascade and to put in another solid round and that played in favor for me. And how was your second round? Walk us through that a little bit. Um, I thought it was good. Uh, um, I thought that maybe the triple bar and the five strides after the triple bar um, was probably my worst of the round, um, just because it was a little crooked and I had to really slow down for that five to go in for the next five. Um, but I thought that I did most of the questions very well, and I think the judges noticed that, and um, I just wanted to stay as consistent as possible, and I think it worked out well. So, out, and then walk us through what happens What happens next. So, you're you're waiting to hear who the top four are, and are you standing with Stacia and Max? And how do, how do you keep your nerves in check? And Stacia, how do you help him keep his, his nerves in check? Um, well, I, I stayed on Cascade when, um, when I finished my round in the second round. And, uh, so once they realized that I could be in the top four, they came out and I started practicing chop jumps and counter counter jumps in the schooling area. And then they announced the top four and they said that, uh, we would be at the other end of the ring without our trainers and we couldn't watch the others. Um, but I wasn't as nervous outside the ring, but when I got all by myself, I sort of realized <laughs> that I was in control of my own results and I could do this all by myself. Um, but yeah, I think that Station Max, they sort of gave me uh, confidence going in and Station always tells me just do the test and 
it'll work out in your favor and don't try and outdo yourself. So Stacia, you bring the experience of finals with you. Do you think that helps you with your students since you've battled uh, nerves yourself, I'm sure? I think so. I mean, I certainly draw on my experiences when I used to ride and compete. And then I draw on my experiences as a trainer from year to year. And it's always surprising to me the shakedown that happens in the second round. And it's very surprising to me year in and year out that when you get into a testing situation, it really comes down to who can deliver the test and not really try to, you know, hit it out of the park. So when you ask the question about, you know, coming back in fifth place, you know, we had a little bit of a, a round with the kids before the course walk because we had eight kids coming back in the top 25. And I was like, you know, a lot changes in the second round and you guys are all in unique positions because you have the ability to, to be the pressure. If you deliver some very good performances early on, that puts more pressure on the, on the top performances and it gets you in striking distance to be able to test and you practice all year long to, to be able to test. And that's where hopefully your confidence and knowing your, your horse comes out. And that's, that's why I'm such a big proponent of the medal and the McClay finals, having kids test on their own horses because they're having to test on other horses in the Washington and the USCT finals. I think winning a championship in the medal and the McClay should be about the chemistry of the horse and the rider and the relationship that they've, built during the year so that they can execute a test like TJ did in the medal finals yesterday. That's a great point. I, I, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, they've, you've spent the year building the relationship and it certainly showed last night. So that was just a beautiful ride, TJ. And, and you know, I talk, you know when you're training the kids, you know, TJ talked about realizing that he was by himself and, you know, all year when we're going over courses, Max and I are spending a lot of time explaining our reasons for uh, come up with a certain plan. And, you know, we're not just giving them a root plan saying, you know, do five, stay out in six, go forward in two. We, we talk a lot about the reasons on why we're making our choices. And TJ touched on the shape of the ring. And, you know, there's a lot of intricacies that go into the course walk and when you've when tj's ridden with a, a trainer as long as he's ridden with max and i he almost can can think like us so i'm sure when he was going over the the plan in the back in gate he wasn't coming up with anything any different than max and i would have told him to do right so you taught him the mechanics of of how to execute is what you're saying yeah, a lot of kids when they when they age out or they win a big class like this, they're doing an interview and you know they're asked you know what they were what they were thinking and the number one comment that I hear repeated over and over again when they're in a situation without their trainer like TJ was last night is I just heard my trainer in my head saying and nine times out of ten when they repeat what they came up with as their plan it was one hundred percent what I would have told them if I had the, the chance to be able to help them. And that's what having your eye on the, 
on the ball at the end of the year is about when you're bringing these kids to this level is educating them during the year and taking some big risks early in the year at some classes that you feel maybe aren't quite so important and stretching the kids and putting them under pressure and seeing what they can and can't do because if they can do it in a non-pressure situation, they're way more likely to do it in a pressure situation. And it's not fair to call on them for the first time when they're in the top four of the medal finals. Thank you, Stacia. And thank you, TJ, for spending a few minutes with us. And we wish you the best of luck. Where can you connect with the Plaid Horse? In all the usual places like theplaidhorse.com, where you can sign up for our daily emails and look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat. Uh, This month, we will also be at the World Equestrian Center in Wilmington, Ohio, the Royal in Toronto, and the Royal West in Calgary, the Washington International Horse Show in D.C., and the New England Equitation Championships at the Big E. You can read every issue on our website or sign up for your own subscription today at theplaidhorse.com. It's been great to learn about equitation and the indoor circuit um, with our guest, T.J. O'Mara and Stacia Madden. And also learn about navigating the collegiate equestrian world with Tom O'Mara. Thank you, Sissy. Thank you, Piper. And make sure to pick up a copy of the Plaid Horse magazine or look at the great editorial on theplaidhorse.com. There's a lot of good reading, so enjoy it. Thank you, Piper. 